Boraway Army and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello! It's the Spark Parade, a show where I talk to amazing people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives. I'm Adam Unz. Thank you so very, very much for joining me. It's an absolute pleasure to be able to put my words in your ears. This week, oh, this week, I'm chatting to writer and fellow podcaster Alexis Cott about his love for the Buffy the Vampire Slayer TV show, which, if you've never heard of it, was a fantasy comedy drama that ran from 1997 to 2003, as well as Kate Bush's expansive and hugely successful 1985 album Hounds of Love, and Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials trilogy of epic fantasy novels. Phew! So much ground to cover. Can we cover all of it? Yes. Yes, we can, and we will. And it's going to be great. So today, we're going to do something a little different. You know how I always run my mouth with my bullshit at the start of every episode? Well, you're still going to get to hear my bullshit. I'm just going to pause here for an audible sigh of relief from the listeners. But... It's going to come at the end of the show because it ties in with this week's recommendation. Will you cope with this level of unexpected change? Only time will tell. But at least we'll take this journey together. Thanks for your understanding during this turbulent time. Okay, announcement over. Let's get on with the motherfucking show, eh? Here comes my chat with Alexis Cott about Buffy, Hounds of Love, and his dark materials. So... How about let's start with Buffy. Very uh, good place to start. Alphabetical. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> Were, are you old enough to have watched it when it was on TV the first time? Only just. So I came to Buffy about season three or four, I would say. Um, yeah, just because I'd like to say I'm a little younger. Although yes. Not that young anymore. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. So I can remember it was on BBC Two at 6.45 on a Thursday and... I loved it. I can remember I would organize the rest of my day and things so that I could, you know, make sure that I sort of caught Buffy when it was on because it was just, it wasn't something that I was ever going to miss because, of course, these were in the days when there was no catch up. Right. Yeah. It's like you have to 
see it exactly when it's on or hope that it'll be repeated at some stage or wait until it is released on whatever the format was at that time. Would it still have been yeah, for... video or DVD? It was on uh, DVD. Yeah. Well, and then in Britain, there was a thing. It went from being on BBC, so everyone could watch it. And then Sky bought the rights to the later seasons. Mm. And now, back then, again, like any digital or subscription TV was expensive. And my family didn't have the money for Sky. So there was this whole bit where I was like, well, now I have to wait for ages because it suddenly went from being on terrestrial television that everyone could see to being on the subscription only on Sky. And you had to like wait about a year for the new season to then come back onto the BBC. That's so there was a long wait. It was commitment that it took. I remember that feeling as well as a child. Like we didn't have any pay TV either. And it was like, you know, knowing other kids who whose parents had paid for premium channels who could watch yep. things that I knew I wasn't going to be able to see for like, whatever, six months or a year. Devastating, especially when you're in the middle of watching something. You've seen a few series of something and you're like, this is it for me. I love it so much. And mm -hmm. then they rip it away from you. Yeah, precisely. Precisely. So what I used to do is one Christmas present request that I would make each year was the Buffy box sets. <laughs> and fortunately my dad was quite into Buffy as well and he liked it yeah. so that that became kind of like a family Christmas present and yeah. we'd watch it which was good and then after but when Buffy finished I then like transitioned and it became like this Christmas could I have the alias box set because <laughs> yeah they were not on terrestrial tv and we didn't have subscription tv anyway yeah. well that you, you know I mean the last uh we don't have to talk about formatting all day long but just the ability to binge watch that was basically the only way that you could do it at the time um yes. so you even though you had to wait longer than everybody else you have it all in your hands at the same time yeah and also you got all those extra special features which i used to watch mm -hmm. you could get like the because back then they were like, well, DVDs are expensive. We have to give them something else. Yeah. So you got all the like the director and cast commentary episodes where you would literally watch an old episode again and you just hear their commentary going like, when filming this scene, the story behind here is this. Or you'd get all the like the featurettes as to how they created the monsters or the, how they did the special effects and did the costumes. So you got a really nice behind the scenes, really well-rounded look at the show as well. Hmm. Yeah. So my patience was rewarded. Yes. And then you get to have, like, not only stuff about the creation of the show, but you get to have a little flavor of, like, the cast's personalities from interviews and talk to, you know, uh, not talk to, but um, see interviews with Joss Whedon or anybody else who was involved in production and get the inside scoop. Exactly, exactly. And also, because Buffy was such a phenomenon, there were all of the, like, read-along books Mm. that you could do and I had a couple of those and I even had in my bedroom a poster of Willow oh. yeah because these were the days when you'd go to HMV and you could like buy posters in there as well and I bought a Willow poster and that was up in my room yeah Did, was she one of your faves so my two favorites were Willow and Anya those were my favorites mm -hmm. from the show. And the two that I kind of identified with the most, Willow, because like loads of people wanted to be Buffy or one of the Slayers. And I kind of always knew that I was the sidekick. And, <laughs> <whatever>. <laughs> and so 
seeing Willow go from being the quite the quite quiet, unpopular, geeky kid, which is absolutely how I was in school, like quiet, no friends, in the back, to kind of finding herself and becoming strong and actually becoming, really coming into her own and blossoming. I really identified with that in a, oh my God, one day I'm going to like grow into my powers, as it were. And then I really identified with Anya as well, because she just did not understand some of the social niceties and pointless things around her. And she's like, well, that's stupid. Why are we doing it like that? And and again, as someone who was a bit more of an outsider, I really identified in that with Anya because like, I don't get why you're all doing this. I don't get why all the popular kids are doing that kind of thing. That's dumb. And I really loved the way that Anya would kind of comment on the ridiculousness of the human condition in those things. And some of the most poignant things came from her, like the amazing and traumatically heartbreaking episode where Joyce, Buffy's mum, dies. Mm-hmm. And Anya has only just become mortal at this point in the show. And I don't mean to say spoilers at this point, I'm sure. It's yeah. like 20 years since it happened. But yeah, spoilers, Buffy's mum dies. <laughs> um, and it's a heartbreaking episode. But Anya just breaks down. She's like, it's stupid. I don't understand. This morning she was in her body and now she's not. And I don't understand why she can't just get back in the body and just be alive. Right. And it is, it's such a simplistic and really innocently childlike way of viewing the um the fragility of mortality in the human condition that later when a close relative of mine died i was like just kind of like looking at her body being like why her body is still there why isn't she inside it i don't understand and again that anya moment came back to me i was like god yeah that was really well summed up by joss whedon's writing yeah and it's exactly that when you have you're in that situation when you've lost people that you love even though the logical part of you knows what death is and knows what it means, it's like, it, it still doesn't make any sense. It's still, yeah. you know, the fact that this is the way the world is and this is what happens to, to everyone seems really unfair and horrible. Um, so yeah, that totally makes sense. And it's amazing to be able to like pick out things like that in the show, these little emotional moments that you can really relate to. And even if it's in this fantasy universe, um, it's really grounded in human emotion. Yeah. And, and again, Anya was a brilliant comment on, yeah, on human emotion from the times when she's suddenly just realizing she's a horny teenager and she's like, coming onto Xander and is talking about how they have these interlocking bodies and it's ridiculous to not interlock. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, exactly. And I loved how blunt she was. Like, if you remember when, and again, I don't know how well you remember Buffy and I'm probably giving away that I spent way too much of my time watching (laughs) Buffy and rewatching it. You don't need to apologize for that at all. That's that this, this is a safe space for you to gush about Buffy as much as you want. (laughs) Well, thank you. But like, even Anya, when she's getting married, she's talking about her wedding vows. And she says, I promise to love you, to cherish you, to honour you. But I'm not going to obey you, of course, because that's misogynistic. (laughs) Do you, I mean, you've you've mentioned a couple of uh, specific moments, but do you have like specific episodes that stuck out for you or even like seasons how long was it on was it is it seven years it's seven yeah Yeah. gosh so i think there are so like there are some quite really really beautiful bits all throughout it um well i had a bit of 
the reason I laugh there is I had kind of um not a, a full sexual awakening, but I had a really like ah <laughs> moment. So in season two, there's an episode called Go Fish, which where turns out again, spoiler alert, the captain of the swim team is putting these kind of like herbs and drugs into the steam of the swim team so that they can swim even better but it's turning them into monsters and obviously because all of Buffy is about parallels and this is actually talking about steroid abuse um, and how it like does bad things to people but Xander like goes undercover to try and work out what's happening and he joins the swim team and there's this slow-mo moment where Xander gets out of the pool and like walks around the pool dripping in a speedo and it lingers on his treasure trail and a little bit of chest hair and i can remember as like a 12 13 year old being like oh 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 i i, I like this <laughs> I think, oh, okay this is a new feeling yeah this is like Quite a few conversations I've had recently, There's there's been a moment where people have referenced remembering the exact second when they had the, like, oh, that man makes me feel funny in my tummy moment. Yeah. They're just like, hmm, that's quite mm-hmm. nice. I'm not quite sure what this means yet, but... Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel like I got Buffy at a good age because the relatively innocent scene where Xander walks slow-mo in Speedo was quite an innocence awakening because then as I matured and the season matured, the show matured as well, then you started to see Spike in his like ripped body in various states of undress. I was like, oh, that that's definitely working for me. <laughs> yeah, I I think that is an interesting thing about a show or like a, any, any kind of work of art that extends for a number of years that your relationship with, with it grows and changes. But especially mm. when it's something that you start watching as an adolescent. Yeah, that's a, it's like you fully grow up with the show. Yes. And it was a really great show to watch and grow with because it, it had a really good heart and soul to it. And... Mm. As much as I think a lot of grown-ups kind of like probably dismissed it as it's a silly... My mum literally would dismiss it as like, oh, that's that show with the people with the silly foreheads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can understand, and I've heard that reaction from a lot of people, that it's like on the surface, just the name of the show, all of the character archetypes that you would see just looking at the cover of uh you know the box set or whatever it seems like it's just a show about vampires and it's like silly fantasy nonsense and a lot of shows that came before it actually were that would be an accurate description and a lot of people looked at it as something that was just like something to dismiss not something to be taken seriously and it really was a huge boost to the fantasy genre i think in in tv and in film to have really good writing really like witty acerbic dialogue and talking about things that are a little bit heavier having weight to the subject matter but also balancing that out with the humor and the levity yeah absolutely and before then shows that were for teenagers were very one-dimensional in how they built their characters they were clearly good people they were clearly bad people they were clearly people who were the comic relief buffy's characterization was unlike anything that went before because they were all so nuanced but yeah it's it's just a fantastic show about regular people being extraordinary essentially and 
taking on all sorts of different problems and yeah there are superpowers in there it's magic and there are monsters but it's very human at its heart because the the emotional interplay between characters is what really stops it from being your average fantasy horror show and really gives it something with a message and poignancy and also a bit of timelessness as well because it's not about the cgi it's not about the costumes it's about the personal relationships between those characters and their development and Mm. that that's timeless yeah yay buffy precisely in the interest of time we should probably uh skip along to subject two which is the hounds of love it's in the trees. It's coming. <laughs> Do you, was this the first Kate Bush album that you engaged with or uh, how, how, tell me how you came to this album. I came to Kate Bush at a very, very young age. I can remember the video for Babushka being on mm. Top of the Pops 2, um, which I was watching on like at a very, very young age. That's probably about five or six or something like that. And I can just remember being utterly spellbound by the video and just be like what who is this person because it starts the video for Bushka and starts off where she's like draped in this like black gauze and like dancing with an oboe see the an oboe or a cello I don't know and then all of a sudden when it gets to the chorus she's in this like chainmail bikini with this cape and sword and it it was just some and the song as well is so powerful like oh yours and so from a very young age that's how i came to kate bush because her theatricality really appealed to the camp theatric child that i was (laughs) (laughs) and then as an adult more in my teens i actually really delved into her archive and her back catalog and really i started to understand how rich and deep and multi-layered and multifaceted it is but hounds of love is my favorite album by hers she's got so many so many amazing songs but hounds of love is is a suite of songs in a collective stands up in such a different way it was um it was the first time that the fairlight was really successfully used which gives it that amazing 80s sound which she championed because loads of other artists heard it and was like, oh, we want a bit of that. Because that came out at the start of the 80s and actually was quite influential for the rest of the decade. And it's just got some phenomenal songs on it from, yeah, Running Up That Hill, which I think there's like something like 35 official covers of that song, which mm-hmm. makes it one of the most covered songs of all time, which, yeah, became, has become one of her biggest hits because it's stunning. And as a song, it's about a man and a woman just wishing they could understand each other's perspective. Then mm-hmm. you've got Cloud Busting, which is this stunning song written from a young boy's perspective of trying to protect the father. And then actual the eponymous, yeah, Hounds of Love, which starts with that wonderful bit from In the Night of the Demon, Hounds of Love, it's in the trees, it's coming. The soundscape that she creates all through those, these songs are so big in the way that they're multi-layered. And again, let's not forget, she wrote and produced all of her own stuff, which now is really rare for women artists to do. But back then, it was even rarer. She was the first woman to ever have a self-penned number one. Mm. And then the, the, le- the last half of Hounds of Love is this 
beautiful suite of songs referred to as the Ninth Wave, which tell a continuous story of a woman lost out at sea. So she's swept overboard, she's lost out at sea, and she slowly loses consciousness and drowns. And while she's drowning, she sees this past live regression moments, memories come back. And then she kind of like, like realizes she wants to live and fights for her life. So it just yeah. takes you through so many wonderful movements and moments of human nature. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also just amazing for the time that it was created. She, first of all, didn't have to think about touring this album. She didn't have to think about yeah. how she was going to perform these songs live because she had, didn't have any interest in touring anymore. She'd only done that one tour. And so combining these elements of like cutting edge electronic music and huge orchestral arrangements and also having like the two sides of the album where the first side is more like traditional song structure and the second mm -hmm. is this conceptual like kind of nebulous you know some of it is just instrumental a lot of it's really experimental and you know she this was coming off the back of an album that was not very successful and yeah. that you know she'd been getting a lot of shit from a record label that she was supposed to present something that was going to be much more uh, accessible to people well two weeks before hounds of love came out Enemy uh, released a thing saying, Kate Bush, where is she now? In this series they were doing about one-hit wonders. <laughs> and then li literally two weeks later, she released Sounds of Love and it went to number one. Yeah. And the fact that it is considered by a lot of people to be her best album, and whether you agree with that or not, it's definitely her most successful album. And taking something that felt very unusual, very experimental, and like, on the surface, it, it might not be for everyone. And it was this huge phenomenon and really gave her her greatest success. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. And I, th I think I would completely agree. It's, I personally do think it is one of her best albums and it is beyond a doubt her most successful mm -hmm. album because it's her most commercial album as well because she um Kate Bush makes very intelligent pop music but Just, then yeah t totally bonkers in the most fantastic oh, yeah. way but un un unashamed or unafraid to be present something that's not this like glossy pop star image like she precisely being weird and giving people something that is unexpected precisely she's got a song called get out of my house which is written about the shining which literally ends with her braying like a donkey <laughs> but um you, you referenced earlier her not having to worry about how she would perform it because when she did do the circle of life tour in the 1970s it's referenced as being the first conceptual tour in that every song was staged and it, was, it wasn't just a rock concert, it was a full performance. And now what we think of as a big pop tour, like there were projections, there were dancers, there were sets. And she's referenced to saying that it was just so exhausting for her, she just couldn't do it again. Mm. But then when she did, finally, I think it was 2015, 2016, I want to say, where she did do her residency at the Hammersmith Apollo, she got to stage these this suite of songs, the ninth wave, back to back, mm -hmm. and each and I I was very fortunate and managed to see it. And actually, we had row A tickets. The gods shined on me at that like frantic butt race for tickets because <laughs> I remember like queuing and being so stressed about like trying to get tickets, trying to get tickets for this, and I didn't even look at where 
the allocated seating was. I was just like, best available, quick pay, go, do, do. And it was only when I looked at the ticket confirmation, I was like, holy shit, I've got row A seats. Holy shit. <laughs> it's an amazing, unobstructive view of it all. But she did do Hounds of Love almost in its entirety because it was broken into three acts, the show. The first bit was a bit more like a greatest hits which was really smart she just came out and she did running up that hill hounds of love the big sky and a couple of other of her like hit singles is like the crowd pleaser moments and then all of a sudden this like giant storm erupted on stage and like blew everyone off stage and the st- the lighting rig came crashing down and all sorts of stuff and this helicopter flew over the audience and then you suddenly realized ah this is act two of her show the ninth wave and she had done while they were doing the big set change the screen came down and you can you can see it on youtube it's gorgeous she'd done a live recording of and dream of sheep from the ninth wave from the album hounds of love where she was floating in a water tank sing live so you get the lapping water so you get the sharpness of breath and it's stunning and then yeah song by song the set changed and she like is singing from this like big submerged set she's got to all these like weird like fish like dancers who have which were very creepy because they were all just fish bone like pulling her all over the stage you've got this wonderful bit where it all got covered in a an artistic representation of the sea of the sea and she's like bursting through it and it's like the waves and her drowning and in pure true to form style where it was very k bush it was incredibly creative incredibly inventive and just so unlike anything unlike any other uh music show i'd ever seen before but it's really really incredible to think that because she was so ahead of her time in so many ways that like the original tour was part of the reason why it was such a big undertaking and part of the reason why her music was, you know, she, she didn't want to tour, but she was really a studio artist and was really focused on um, just making these like big lush kind of musical soundscapes. But there was also this element of like the technology hadn't really caught up to where she was. So yeah, it must've been really amazing to see her perform when the technology was kind of on a par to, to where her, her music needed it to be. Oh yeah, absolutely. You talk about like for her first tour technology, not being where it was like she had to invent the radio mic for her yeah. first ever tour because she wanted to sing and dance at the same time rather than hold a hand mic. So her and her um, sound designer literally put a mic on a coat hanger. <laughs> and she talks in interviews about how at first it was picking up signal from the local taxi cab. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely incredible. Um, again, in the interest of time, we should probably skip along yet again mm-hmm. um, to... Yet another very important cultural touchstone, the His Dark Materials trilogy. Oh, fantastic. Such a great series of books. So His Dark Materials is a really highbrow, epic trilogy. And it's high fantasy by Philip Pullman. And it came out, I think, uh, late 90s. So it was... Three books consisting of Northern Lights, then The Subtle Knife and The Amber Spyglass. And it follows the story of 
a young girl called Lyra Blackwa and her friend Will Parry as they go through a series of different mystical lands of parallel worlds that all rub up against each other. And they, no spoilers, they find a way <laughs> of like traveling through in between these different worlds. Now, these are fantasy books for kids, but they are so intelligent. And this is one of the things that I love about Philip Pullman's writing is that he doesn't patronize children or young adults. And he, because he fully believes that young people are capable of understanding big issues and big topics and it's actually an incredibly the whole se series is a very very clever and powerful comment on the power of the christian especially catholic church mm -hmm. and what a destructive force that is because the church in the books is this big bad and that is effectively what they are trying to not only fight against but fight for freedom from because it's a very tyrannical force in the book which actually is not that not that far away from what the Catholic Church has been like in our real world. Yeah, um, I just read a little quote from an interview with Philip Pullman where he said that between the first and the second books, he used a quote from some Catholic publication basically saying that, you know, this book is uh, revolting and that it was like used as a pull quote on the next book, <laughs> like to, mm. um, as a badge of pride. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, because Philip Pullman is a very proud atheist and humanist and he makes great commentary about mm -hmm. the destruction and controlling manipulative force of organized religion which i think we i think more people should be aware of and it's no surprise that when there was the first film adaptation of it and the questionable film the golden compass mm -hmm. was released the church went into overdrive of trying to get it shut down and if you believe the rumors they are the reason why the studio wouldn't fund the second film yeah, maybe it took the BBC something <laughs> a little bit more uh, independent to be able to follow through and make the whole thing as they have done. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, this uh, end of October, the HBO BBC co-funded production of His, His Dark Materials comes through. And mm. yeah, they're, what's great is they're taking it as, right, Game of Thrones is over. We need another high, intelligent, epic fantasy. Ah, His Dark Materials. Because <laughs> yes. it's... It pulls in references from high fantasy, but also from physics and from philosophy and theology and asks some great, great questions because it's effectively dealing with, well, what is sin and why do, we, why do we feel it and how do we overcome it and what's the human condition? Did you read the books when they came out or? Oh, I devoured them. I was given, yeah. I was given the Northern Lights for Christmas presents. And then The Subtle Knife and The Amber Spyglass, yeah, when they came out, I got those as well. <laughs> um, yeah. My parents are, they're both English teachers. And so books were prized in my house and they were things that were, they were considered gifts. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, every birthday, Christmas. And, <laughs> and so in my house, the Easter bunny didn't bring easter eggs the easter bunny brought easter books oh, <laughs> so every easter i got a special book i love that yeah and it would be like the harry potter books or tolkien things or stuff by philip pullman that's great yeah. and did you were you aware of like the political philosophical undertones of, of the book when you were reading them or were you too little i think when i first read them 
I wasn't aware of the political and and theological and like philosophical impact of it. Mm -hmm. And then when I read them as a teenager, as a late teenager, I was like, ah, ah." and then in my 20s when rereading, I was like, these are so clever. Mm -hmm. And again, it's brilliant because you can enjoy it as a high fantasy book about talking bears and like demons. Uh, So what the demons are in Lyra's world, everyone has this manifestation of your spirit. So if you are a man, you have a female demon. If you are a woman, you have a male demon. And before you go through puberty, when you're a child, these demons can take any animal form and they will change form and shape. And they talk to you, by the way. And so they're always like, think of it like a really cool, mystical, magical Jiminy Cricket style thing. But they're not telling you what's right or wrong. They're there along for the adventure with you. And then when you go through puberty, it settles into its true form and it's your demon stops being able to shapeshift. And whatever it becomes tells you something about your character. So it's mm. a really clear way of understanding a bit about people. And so as a kid, I was like, these are amazing. And I really wanted one. <laughs> and I imagined yeah. that my dog was my demon because I was a boy and my dog was a girl. So <laughs> I was sort of there as my demon. And then, yeah, as I became older, I started to understand a lot of the political connotations of it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think... Even as an adult, you can still really enjoy the adventure of the story. Um, oh, yeah. They're just so well written and, and so vivid. Incredibly vivid and incredibly emotional. There's um there's a character called Lee Scoresby who's this Texan aeronaut who flies around the world in a hot air balloon. And he has a hair called Hester as his demon. And there's this moment which, whenever I get to in the books, makes me tear up because... They are they are sacrificing themselves and their lives to save Lyra. And it's the two of them having this slow, drawn-out shootout against some invading forces, trying to buy Lyra time to escape. And as the bullets slowly hit Lee Scoresby, he and his demon have this wonderful, heartbreaking conversation where they're saying goodbye to each other and expressing their love to each other. And then she vanishes as he dies. And it's just, oh heart-wrenching yeah so well written totally totally incredible you've made excellent choices for uh subjects to talk about um these are all such incredible expansive artists who've built worlds i mean including kate bush really yeah stuff that you can really sink your teeth into that's precisely and i think the thing they all have in common is that they never take the easy answer mm-hmm. they and you le- by watching them listening to them reading them you can really learn you can really learn new things about the human condition and they ask big questions and they ponder and explore what it means to be human but also they think about what it means to be more than human and they look at fantasy alternative worlds and new ways of being yeah very well put um, I am extremely satisfied. I feel like we have covered a awesome. lot of ground, but not uh, given anything short shrift. Um, good. Given everyone their due. What about mm-hmm. if someone who's listening to this would like to learn more about you? How would they do that? Um, you can listen to my podcast, 
at mm. Community Pod. Um, that is Q M-U-N-I-T-Y. It's a long form docu-series where we explore LGBTQ issues and history and politics. So we look at what it means to be LGBTQ. We do a deep dive into LGBT history and emancipation and political voting. We also look at things about loneliness and how that affects queer people more than heterosexual or cisgendered people. We look at how you find and build a community, those sorts of topics. And then me personally, um, you can find me generally being a bit of a fool on Instagram at Toddler Lex. Now, the reason why I have that handle is because lots of my friends nicknamed me and pointed out that I was a, just a giant overground toddler. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> Great. Well, so thank you so much for talking to me. This has been really fun. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. I have like I love some of the guests that you've had on your show, so I am very pleased to be on there amongst like the likes of like Idol and Iconic Legato Chocolat and other people. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, and I'll talk to you soon. Meet you soon. Okay, bye bye. Well, that was lovely, wasn't it? Alexis is a great guy, and you should check out his podcast and his Instagram and everything. Okay? Great! Now, it's time for your recommendation with the highly anticipated preamble, Can You Stand the Suspense? One of the great things about doing this podcast and about being an artist myself is getting to meet other artists. Uh, I've been acting since I was about eight, and since I started... I've always had a community of like-minded people who I could rely on. The community changed over the years and grew because, you know, I moved from city to city, I met new people, or people moved away. But I've always had this pool of people that shared this desire to create and engage with art. And I've always been able to rely on my friends and acquaintances when I needed help or advice with projects I've worked on. I mean, how do you think I found all the guests for this show? And... That's a really fucking amazing thing to have in your life. That's why I feel a duty to return the favor when anyone else needs help or advice from me. Because to me, there's nothing like the kinship between artists, and I think we all owe it to each other to lift each other up whenever we can. Would you like me to illustrate my point using celebrity stories? Of course you would! So there's Jamie Foxx letting Ed Sheeran sleep on his couch for six weeks when he was starting out. Or something a little bit more involved, Marilyn Monroe at the height of her fame, sitting front and center every night at a prominent jazz club that wouldn't book black artists so that they would agree to let Ella Fitzgerald play there. There are, I'm going to say, kajillions of other examples like this. And that shit makes my heart sing, which is why I loved watching They Ready on Netflix, which is a series of stand-up specials hosted by Tiffany Haddish. Now... Tiffany Haddish already had all of my love before I started watching this series. She's fucking hilarious, and I love watching her stand-up and the 900 million film and TV projects she's had a part in over the last few years. And now, she's given the world yet another reason to love her with this new series. All of the comedians in this series are her friends, people she's known since she was a comic on the circuit trying to break through. And the story goes that she told all of these women, they're all women, by the way, that she was going to come back and get them and bring them with her when she got famous. And this show is her making good on that promise. There are these little backstage moments before the stand-up set in each episode of this series. And... 
the interaction is always some version of the comedian who's the focus of that episode saying to Tiffany Haddish, you used to say that to me all the time about coming back for me and taking me with you when you got to be famous. And lots of people say things like that and then it doesn't happen and that's totally fine. That's life. But you really came back for me. You guys, I want to cry just thinking about it. Like, that's some heartwarming shit right there. And these people are funny, too. So you get to feel all warm and fuzzy and laugh. And they're 30 minutes long each, so you're not even going to have to invest very much of your time. I love seeing successful artists use their platform to give a leg up to the people they've worked with and loved throughout their career. Well fucking done, Tiffany Haddish. Okay, my little buddies, I think that just about covers everything for this episode. As per usual, please follow me on social media, at Spark Parade, and then rate the show five stars and leave me a nice review wherever you download or stream. And then do something for yourself. You need some you time, okay? Good stuff. Take excellent care of yourself this week. Until next time, bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.